believe in design with a lowercase d, not capital D. Design is available to everyone. You're designing your life every day. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Lisa Dimitrios. Lisa Dimitrios is the youngest grandchild of Charles and Ray Eames, the legendary mid-century industrial design duo who made significant pioneering contributions to modern furniture and architecture. Lisa grew up steeped in the lessons and inquiries of her grandparents and learned to embrace their approach as a way to navigate the world, solve problems, and see new possibilities. Now... After decades of concerning herself with preserving the Eames' legacy and vast collections of furniture, drawings, films, prototypes, and sketches, she's embarked on a new way to share their approach with the world. The Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity. Recently launched with a star-studded team of collaborators, the new platform aims to bring the lessons of Charles and Ray to life for the next generation of curious problem solvers. Existing initially as a free and easily accessible online destination, the Eames Institute curates experiences, content, and programs that are designed to engage the audience interactively, sparking that curiosity and wonder that energized the Eames methods and informed their worldview. Lisa is also an archivist and passionate bronze sculptor, and as you'll hear in her story, She brings all of this creativity, material sensibility, historical knowledge, and embodied wisdom through in her curatorial work with the Eames Institute, and imbues it with a sense of joy, and dare I say, infinite curiosity. Here's Lisa. My name is Lisa Demetrius. I live in Petaluma, California, and I am the chief curator at the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That is quite a title. Uh, Before (laughs) we get all the way to that, I like to go back to the beginning. You come from quite a lineage I really like to start with the formative years. If you could talk about your hometown, your childhood fascinations, and of course, your family dynamic, including your very creative DNA. I'm the youngest of five children. I was born and raised in San Francisco, California. I played a lot of sports. I also did ballet and gymnastics. I also volunteered at Steinhardt Aquarium and Golden Gate Park on Saturdays and worked at a little store um, in Girdley Square on Sundays. I loved being in San Francisco and spending time doing all these different activities. The way I look at it is I come from a family of makers, and I actually come from makers on both sides of my family. On my father's side, I come from a bronze sculptor, my father's father, uh, and my grandmother was Virginia Lee Burton, who wrote children's books, like Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel. And then on my mother's side, I come from Ray and Charles Eames, who were extraordinarily gifted at designers, but were even more amazing as grandparents. 
well, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so that's pretty amazing to have all that creativity in your background. And I have to just put an exclamation point on Charles and Ray Eames. I'm a furniture designer. So yes. um, their contribution to American design is historic and can't be understated. So I also am going to need to know, like, did you grow up around all of that furniture? Did you have access to the studio? If they were amazing grandparents, I'm so happy to hear that because I don't want my idols to be um, knocked off their pedestals. Yes. No, as prolific as they were, they were amazing grandparents. And I think what makes it so special is, yes, we got to go down and visit their office at the Eames office in 901 Washington Boulevard in Venice, California, and stay at their home and spend time with them and learn about how they solve problems. They never talked down to us. We thought everyone's grandparents made films like Powers of Ten or a short screen presentation, multi-screen presentation. But what I think is most important is I felt heard and listened to. They knew I wanted to be a sculptor. And so Charles and Ray said to me, then use every tool in your studio as well, if not better than the person you hire. And then you'll know when they're doing a good job. Whoa. How old were you when they said that and that lodged in your brain? I was only about 10. Oh my God. Charles passed away when I was 12 and Ray when I was 22. It was great advice that I didn't realize how great it was until I was a full-time sculptor. But also they said, you know, focus on one material. And what they meant by that is really learn that material. So I picked bronze and sheets of bronze to, took me three years to Tigwell, learn how to do that in my parents' studio to really understand what the material could or could not do. It's that idea of the honest use of materials that's also in Ray and Charles's work. I'm really interested in this because you as a child, like this would all just feel like normal. Exactly. This is my normal. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it, it was a gift. And it only is a gift that I realize is more and more of a gift as I get older you know, raise my own family and work with the archival material that my mother inherited from them. I just realize every year how special all of this is. I think it's not just the physical material like that's in the collection. It's having heard the stories and being around them. I mean, I'm often asked, what's one of my earliest memories of spending time with Ray and Charles? And it's going out to dinner with them in Venice, California, a restaurant near their office. And we're coming back from the restaurant and Charles turned to me and said, what'd you think of dinner? It was borscht. I was eight. You can guess what my answer was. <laughs> I didn't learn to appreciate borscht until no. my early adulthood. <laughs> I, exactly. I love making borscht now, but at the time I did not like it. So I said to Charles, I said, I didn't like it very much. Without missing a beat, he turned back to me and said, well, how would you have done things differently? Wow. So if you're going to complain about something you need to have a better way of doing something. He said, did you even know, do you know what's in borscht? And I wasn't quite clear, but he explained beets and potatoes and onions. And he's like, you could make a salad and you could make mashed potatoes or something. And then he also added, why did the chef make it that day? And so we talked about like, why did it? Was it maybe a grandmother's birthday in Russia? And they were trying to think of like connecting with them. Um, oh by, my gosh, context. <laughs> yes. Or they said, maybe that's all that was at the farmer's market. Maybe that was just the soup du jour that they always had on that day. So what was great is I felt heard. And yet I learned so much in that moment of just being able to look at things differently and be able to see, as you said, the context. And I just thought that was an incredibly valuable lesson. It was a great life lesson. What a fantastic way to, to engage with your grandchildren, mm -hmm. to impart the kind of thinking that you've developed over your life's work, but, but to also engage with your grandchildren in a way that's so validating to their opinions and their development, trusting that they will be able to see the world in this dimension, this exactly. great deep dimension that you do. But so that's why for me, it's these layers that have solely my mother and I telling stories around the pieces or memories that we have, that is what really brings it to life for me. And I love sharing these stories. Um, and so this is why taking care of the collection, 
I was a grandchild when I saw these objects at their office, and now I'm taking care of them, and I have a whole other appreciation for their process being around the work that I do today. Well, and you also have the historical benefit of seeing how it was so revolutionary in its incarnation and in its first round, but how it's endured and shaped design and design thinking since its invention is is just incredible. Yes. I want to get um, back to something else you said. You said that you picked bronze and you mm-hmm. learned to TIG weld and you're a bronze <laughs> sculptor. Yes. Did this start in your youth? It did. My parents had a studio on South San Francisco where they were making much larger scale sculptures, more 80 feet tall for large commissions. Oh, and, shit. Right, 80 so, feet tall. That's 80 feet tall. <laughs> but what I saw with them working is I decided with my own work to work smaller, like 10 feet or less, because it was something I saw with Ray and Charles also. They would call it a chair architecture you can hold in your hand because you can control all the parts. You, As opposed to if you're building a house, then you're also painting it, getting a plumber, you know, you're getting all these people together. So learning how to make sculptures out of sheets of bronze, I could do everything in-house by myself. I could drive the forklift, I could weld, I could do it all. And so I love because then I could make all the choices. And usually I worked in a wooden maquette first, like only about 12 inches tall, and then I enlarged it to whatever scale it needed to be. This is fascinating. Okay, so clearly you had all the support you needed from many generations to flourish in your own creativity. I'm kind of zeroing in on your adolescence here, like the teenage years when your identity is being forged. And did this ever feel like pressure? No, it actually felt very natural. I've always been making things as a little girl. I would take my old socks and make mobiles with like out of the the socks and, you know, make little (laughs) birds out of old material. I'd take scraps of wood on my floor of my parents' studio and make little scale models. So I was always making. When I went to college, though, my parents didn't want me to major in art. They wanted me to have a plan B. They wanted me to have more options. And they also felt that that would also imbue back in my work. So when I went to Yale, I actually majored in history. In my sculptures, I do a lot of things about time, like layers of the earth, a bouncing ball happening over time. It's interesting how things all still come through eventually. Oh my gosh. And that history background is is probably essential to your work as an archivist as well. Exactly. It's been great. It's been It's been so helpful in so many ways, yes. Was your teenage years truly that magical or (laughs) come on, there's got to be something. I think in my family, everyone worked hard. The the main thing was not to rest on your laurels, but more like to always be thinking of the next project and thinking what you're doing, be very intentional on what you're doing. And yes, there was great support, but I did think it was funny when my parents wanted me to have a plan B in college. And also at that point, when I was 17, I graduated from high school and I decided to take a year off before college. And that was a really important year for me to work in my parents' studio, hone those skills, but also earn enough money so I could go live in Paris with a friend of mine whose cousin was in the military. So the apartment was available and go have that experience of living in another country. And of course, incredible art. So I could go to the museums all the time and to the Sorbonne. So one thing that I'm picking up is um, the intentionality. You just said the word intentional, and mm-hmm. it's it's clear through everything that you've said so far in your upbringing that there's a very clear through line between why things are the way they are and how you have agency in sort of not only affecting your future, but understanding the way things got to be the way they are. So that understanding of the intentionality behind your own actions, but also behind how things got to be the way they are is an incredible way to look at the world and something that a lot of people still struggle to get there. Absolutely. And I, and I even would add, I was supported, like no one tried to talk me out of being a sculptor. Instead, I was given power tools and a bandsaw for my birthday, you know, so it's <laughs> not like anyone tried to dissuade me. It was more, how do you do it? And then you're left to your own devices to do it. Someone else isn't going to do that for you. Was very important. There would be mistakes. That's again, something I learned from Ray and Charles, which is 
you know, just because you make a mistake, that that's not bad. That means you're closer and you can do something, you know, better the next time. They didn't call them failures. They called them misconceptions. That That's interesting, too. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. So you went to Yale and studied history. You mm-hmm. also spent a year in Paris. These sound like pivotal experiences to me. Can you walk me through the major lessons, crossroads and milestones that have since continued to shape your path? The, the traveling and spending time in Paris and learning at my parents' studio was absolutely shaped a lot of what I was going to be doing in the future. And I guess for me, one of the most important things was look at things as opportunities of learning. It may not be the final way you want to do something, but it's an opportunity to try ideas out and do things. That was a formative year, but an even more formative year was when I was graduating from Yale. And at the end of my senior year, I had an opportunity for two internships. One was one week working at an auction house on a catalog of a sale that was coming up. And then the other one was a six weeks internship at MoMA working in the Mies van der Rohe archive on his American drawings. And, and this is about 1989 when the Van Gogh sunflowers are selling for like $80 million. My experience at both places had a huge influence on me. What I found I was doing when I was at the auction house was buying all the catalogs that I could of the exhibits because I realized I might never see some of those artworks again. They would go into a private collection never to be seen by the public again. Meanwhile, my experience at working at MoMA, it was so great to see people changed by the art, the shared experience, the excitement, walking through the galleries. You saw some people come back regularly. And it didn't matter if who you are, you could be a celebrity or whatever. You were changed by the experience of being at MoMA walking through the spaces. So with that, I wanted to stay in the nonprofit world and always use my abilities to help get work out there, help get it shared by more people is how I looked at it. And so my six weeks turned into three years working on that project of at MoMA, which was... <laughs> As the story goes that I heard, Arthur Drexler in the 1960s had um, gone to Mies van der Rohe and said, we'd like to select about eight drawings. He came back the next day to get those eight drawings and Mies had put them in with all of the drawings and said, you take all of it or none of it. What I was doing was helping finish 10 years of other people's work in archiving. And what we counted was we had 14,000 drawings. Oh my God. So this is where my love for archival material comes from, because the coolest part to me was seeing Mies van der Rohe and his team iterating on the different locations, the possibilities of the property. There were like these six by eight pieces of paper. You'd almost think they were playing a card game, just throwing something into the middle of the table is how I visualized it. You know, try this, try that. The whole point I was doing this was they were doing a publication of the drawings. So it was working with former staff members at Mises office, you know, making sure everything's in the right category. So it was, it was a huge joy. And then when I finished that, they offered me another project, which probably would have been a five-year project of the furniture drawings with Lily Reich. And at that point, I had asked my mother, you know, how it was going with the archival material because she had received and inherited so much from our grandmother and had it up in San Francisco. And I said, I was happy to help the family archive this material if, if you're interested. And so 30 years later, I'm still archiving. <laughs> I want to double back to the Mies van der Rohe project because you are absolutely right. It is not that interesting to th- see the finished drawing. Right. It's more interesting to see everything they started with and then edited out and then revised and iterated upon along the way to get to the finished drawing. Then you have some sense of, of how the idea grew. It looks effortless. I mean, if you look at the Seagram's building, if you look at the apartment building, but what it took to get there, the base systems they considered, the proportions, the materials, all of this, it's an amazing amount of information that comes together to find the best possible solution. So that's when I really saw the iterative process in another collection, other than my grandparents was seeing it in the Mies van der Rohe collection, and also how he got to his own home runs in the designs. Yeah. What a, what a gift to be able to see that window and kind of interpret that. 
Absolutely. I teach, and when I ask students to present their ideas, I often ask them to present the ideas that they've already like rejected as well. <laughs> that sounds great. I think that's a great idea. I think know? it's so helpful to understand where they've traveled through and why they've rejected certain things. And I think we can learn so much more from our history, from our great designers by having a window into that as well. I, I agree. And I think it's almost like this analog material, how I look at it is only becoming more important in this digital age because we can share this in different ways, this analog material. And, you know, in an exhibit, maybe they only have room to show five or 10 things, but with digitally, you can show the, the whole full oeuvre of that project. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the Talks main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. 
Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I want to get into your latest venture, but before we go there, is there are there any other like pivotal experiences that you feel shaped you as an archivist and a bronze sculptor along the way to your becoming a full-fledged human? (laughs) (laughs) I think the other thing that I would add was living and, and working with my mom. We lived on the same property and we also did our own artworks is that seeing her process. I grew up with a mother who could weld, but she became allergic And she had to find another way to express her designs, which is when laser cutting was coming in. And we could, I think something that I love to do is communicate things in different ways. So I was helping her take these ideas and get them laser cut in different materials, aluminum, stainless steel, steel, right here in Petaluma, playing with the scales, the thickness, the durability and the finishes. So even though it wasn't my own artwork, I got a lot of, Uh, experience working in other materials and seeing what they could or could not do. You also got a window into an unfortunate lesson that sometimes we can spend our life's work um, perfecting a craft and then need to adapt in order to take care of ourselves if that something becomes toxic about it. Well, what's funny is, you know, I, I sort of asked my mother that and she said the only thing she was jealous about with how I got to work was that I got to weld and build and make all the decisions literally until like the sculpture would leave my studio with her. She says, I had to make all my decisions before it went to the laser cutter. So I didn't have that freedom to make a little nuanced change. It was much more difficult than it was. You know, she did everything herself before. And this was having to rely on others to execute. That is interesting. And it it goes back to what you said earlier about working within um, architecture. You can hold in your hand that 10 foot scale, as well as when you work with many different processes that require teams and outsourcing, it does require a different way of working. It does. And I also think, I think my mother being around Ray and Charles and my also being around Ray and Charles, we saw how they explored different materials and almost like every material has its advantages that other materials don't. And so my mother always looked at it as like, what can the steel do that the stainless steel can't or vice versa? I felt that was very informative for me than when I was making my own sculpture. Well, that does sound like an enriching environment to constantly be creating in. (laughs) (laughs) You're always on. You don't retire in my family. You just go (laughs) until you put your head down or something. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me now about your latest venture, the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity, because you are the chief curator. You're embedded in the project all the way back through your DNA. It's a very personal and passionate mission for you. So can you start by giving me an overview of of what it is and what it attempts to do? The Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity Our mission is that we seek to equip everyone with the lessons of Ray and Charles Eames so that anyone can solve problems through design. I am the chief curator who gets to work with the collection and show these lessons through the collection is what I love to do. It can be through an exhibition. It can be giving a tour of the material or storytelling or presentations. But all of the lessons that we share here are through the collection and that came from Ray and Charles's office at 901. That's how we often refer to their offices, simply 901, because that was the address. Are you generating actual visitor experiences or is this a digital content mission or is it both? For right now, the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity is a website that shares the collection online. 
It's an opportunity. We have online exhibits. We have articles written about the collection, but also designers today who work the, many of the same ways that Ray and Charles did. This is a way for people to learn how Ray and Charles solve problems, and then they can apply it to how they might solve problems for of the future. So give me an example of what that looks like. Like, what are some of the inaugural exhibitions? So some of the online exhibits that we have are, I think many people are curious what Ray and Charles were doing before they met. And then also about the molded plywood, which is some of the first chair designs that they did, and also the leg splint that they did during the war. And then the third exhibit is about side chairs, which is a chair that a lot of people recognize from having sat in them in auditoriums or doctor's offices over the years. Yeah, iconic. Yeah, very iconic, very recognizable. So when people enter the world of Ray and Charles's work, it's often through furniture. But what we're doing here at the Eames Institute is showing how they applied that same thinking for designing a chair to also how they designed an exhibit, their photography, the architecture that they did. And so it's more about how they solve problems than just the finished project. I can see that because they were so transdisciplinary in their everyday, the way they operated, that there would be these underlying connections. Even I think the leg splint is a really great example of how they might be working on compound molding of plywood, and then they can see how it would apply to very different industries and functions in really meaningful ways. And that even from there, underneath that, that if they could solve a problem in another industry, that might actually finance or at least support and offer traction for solving problems in a different industry. That is so true. I think part of what we've done here is distilled these into five lessons of Ray and Charles. And it's things like awareness, the act of seeing, context, the acts of relating, problem solving, the act of finding, communication, the act of sharing, and process, the act of making. And to give you an example, just part of what they made, like with the airport tandem seating, was talking to not just the person, as they put it, who's buying the furniture, but also the person who's going to take care of the furniture. And the problem with airport seating at the time was they were upholstered and heavy. The two shapes, the back and the seat, were two different shapes. They were hard to store. So what Ray and Charles did is they came up a way with having the back and the seat being the same shape. It took just one person and a screwdriver to pop open and replace the parts. And to me, I almost look at like they mended systems. They made them better and stronger, seeing where the weak points were. And they took into consideration that if this piece was going to be truly functional, it needed to also be long lasting. So it had to function not just for like holding somebody's carcass, but they, <laughs> it needed to function in terms of how it was going to live in the airport, how it was, yeah, and how the people who were caring for it were going to be able to care for it easily. Brilliant. It is. And, and so what we share here is that Ray and Charles weren't thinking about making one chair. They were trying to create systems to make a hundred thousand chairs. And then they thought even further than that, how to make a sustainable chair how to make it better for the environment. So it's a whole other way of questioning what they were making that I I think people see the result, but we can share how they got there. So I can learn these lessons through going to the Eames Institute of Infinite Curiosity online. You mentioned collaborators, and I'm kind of excited to hear from you where you think future exhibits might go and what kinds of other lessons might be coming in the in the future. I think for us, it's really watching and seeing the response from people who have been here before and seeing what they're doing today, what lessons they took away. I feel like this work online is a way for people to percolate about these ideas and these lessons that we're sharing. And then they often come back and share how they applied it or what they're thinking, what really resonated with each person. And so for me, it's going to be exciting. I'm hoping that this reaches broadly. I mean, that's what's special about having the website is reaching a broader audience, working in many different areas and working within many constraints is what Ray and Charles would call it and learning from that. And it's almost like a community is, is what I'm hoping for. 
our ecosystem, exactly. I'm hearing. Yeah. The beauty of this execution in a website, too, is the infinite accessibility. Very few boundaries to people being able to access this. As an educator, I just really appreciate that. Not everybody can go to design school. I also think that if you can percolate this with children, as you so clearly exemplified in your youth, we can start to grow really amazing creatives who will shape a world that's more inclusive and ecologically harmonious. And okay, I'm getting really idealistic. No, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think you can never start too early on this. It starts as early in age as possible. I think what the website does is it makes it very approachable. As Ray and Charles, they would make two minute short films like about mathematical principles. And they said, well, if the person doesn't get it the first time, they can watch it again. And so this is like what I, what I'm hoping for the website is these are skills that people can learn how Ray and Charles did it, not to say that they have to do it that way, but it might help inform another way that they might approach something. I mean, to give you another example, I always love that when Ray and Charles were first designing chairs, they were designing them with three legs. Now that's a great concept because, you know, a three-legged stool or a chair is very solid on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And then they tested them. And what they found is people don't know how to get out of a three-legged chair without falling over. (laughs) So (laughs) what they realized was you can't teach people how to sit in a chair. You have to work with how they sit in a chair. And so then they changed them to four legs. But again, that wasn't a failure. That was just a misconception. That's another thing that I think is just really important is try out the ideas. Don't talk about them. Just try them is what Charles would tell us grandchildren. Don't just write it out on the napkin. See if it works and then go from there. I love it. Uh, I work with a, a faculty here who says, get real fast. It means like, get out of the computer, do all the renderings you want, but get out of the computer and get into real materials, real scale, real proportions right. fast, or else you won't ever really know if it works. Right. And one thing that's funny is like, it's always interesting to me how people interpret the lessons that we're sharing. Like some people think fail fast, but the main thing is it's okay to fail is more the message that that goes through. And so I guess what I also wanted just to add was what we're doing today evolved from word of mouth. It was just simply my mother and I sharing stories with the archival material that she kept and people maybe coming in knowing one thing about Ray and Charles, but then walking away going, wow, they also did all these other things that I had no idea about. And so one thing that I love about here is Ray and Charles, when they would design an exhibit, they didn't try to show everything on the topic like math. What they tried to do was simply show six or eight things that got that person excited enough that they want to learn more. And so that's what I'm hoping for the Eames Institute is we just, I just want people to follow their curiosity and always want to learn more. That's beautiful. As you're talking about this and mentioning all the stories that you and your mother have, and this all sort of came from word of mouth, I'm really hoping there is some kind of oral history storytelling component to this that's going to capture all those stories in, in your own family inflections. Well, you're starting this, so that's great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited to be a part of it. (laughs) And what's really funny is like, it's like when I've given a tour at an exhibit or with the archival material here with a curator, each tour is different because I am watching what the person's looking at. Let's just say there's a hundred objects in the room. They're starting to make connections or they recognize something. And then that leads to something else. And so what's amazing with the collection is that every object has a story. But literally, there will probably be, when we count up everything, it'll be about 20,000 objects. My God. Enormous. It's it's both what Ray and Charles made, also what they collected. But it was a, we call it a working collection because it helped inform what they were doing and whatever they were working on. I mean, they were always looking for similarities between cultures, not the differences. They were curious about what are some toys that are just, passed down from one generation to another, like kites and tops are in many, many cultures. And so that's what I'm saying. It's like, for me, it's just fascinating to see. I'm always, I'm always learning from this collection every day. I feel so fortunate. 
And all I want to do is make this available to more people, which is why I'm so excited about this website. As we keep adding on, we're going to do monthly exhibits. And as we share and as we unbox things. We're still unboxing things. Oh my God, this is amazing. So I want to talk about your creative process in terms of developing these exhibits. I'm wondering, are you also employing some of the lessons? Like, are you iterating and trying things out and seeing what works? And how do you conceive of an exhibition that might uh, percolate curiosity and provide enough information to spark passion and ideas, but not so much that it overwhelms. Well, that's why we, we're starting with these first three online exhibits, because you can see the hands-on learning that Ray and Charles did with the molded plywood, for example, which I always love that as soon as they developed the prototypes, do you know what they realized, Amy? What? How something is made influences design. So they had to make not just the prototypes, but the machines that made the prototypes. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> exactly. And so, so for me, we're able to share that and how they scaled that idea up and how they could take an idea for a chair that could be adapted into a leg splint for the war effort. I also appreciate that that was a way they could help the war effort without hurting anybody by developing that leg splint. And I think all of these lessons, I breathe them. And I guess for me, what I notice is when I am developing these online exhibits and as we're coordinating with the stories that will be in Kazam at the same time, we're looking at highlighting some of these very important lessons about problem solving, like for the leg splint or also the, the communications and how Ray and Charles, whether it was um, a piece of furniture or was the architecture of their home or a graphic, were communicating their ideas I still think all of this is relevant today. It still always remains fresh to me. I also think they were amazing at how they looked at things, taking a step back to make sure they're understanding the full context, but then also something may look like chaos at that further back, but then you go in deep and you start to see how things are connected one part to the next. I think one thing that surprises people is they didn't realize how Ray and Charles were thinking sustainably much sooner than a lot of other people. And for example, working on the national querying proposal, which maybe some people don't know as much about, but that was really about helping people care for something that they couldn't see. So they were making the invisible visible. You know, most people don't go scuba diving or, or snorkeling on a regular basis, but how could you care for this underwater world that was very important to our ecosystem? So that was doing the National Aquarium. Or Ray discontinued the use of rosewood on the lounge in Ottoman when she heard of the impact on the Brazilian forests and said to my mother, when there's a sustainable way of doing it, then bring it back, but not until then. That's a powerful lesson to instill in your children. And, you know, I don't know if there was an economic fallout from that, but to actually stand by your principles and what's good for the world or the highest good as opposed to what's currently in motion and might be disruptive to stop. But this is why it's never been a burden. It's always been a joy to be a part of this legacy. And it's very much for me what my grandparents did and then what I learned from them. And then I put it to my own work. There's plenty of room for everyone in the world of Eames. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So the intentionality that you started off this conversation talking about is coming through, I think, also in the stewardship of the legacy because it's not just about archiving the work. It's not just about exhibiting what they did and when they did it, or even talking about its historical significance. It's about activating it so that those lessons can be shared by everyone. And it's the belief in those lessons and how they will propagate a promising future that I think is underscoring all of this. And let it also be recognized the extreme care and intention that you and your family are putting into this, and also all of the other people that are working on this Eames Institute. We need to acknowledge the emotional and creative labor that goes into things. And a lot of times that's intangible. And as you pointed out with Mies van der Rohe and other things, a lot of times it's invisible because we only focus on the finished product. But when you invest something with a genuine care and intention for its highest good, for its best expression, for its ability to be long-lasting and influence people in meaningful and positive ways, I just think that's the most important thing you can do in the world. It is. So I feel my responsibility is I felt so empowered by my grandparents that I want everyone to feel that empowered. And my job is to figure out how to communicate these lessons that I learned, that my mother learned. And so this is why the new website and this launching of the Eames Institute is such an extraordinary opportunity. It's going to change. It's going to evolve. We're going to learn what resonates with people. We're going to iterate. And so this is just like the first moment of this and, and seeing what connects. I will feel like I have succeeded if I know that everyone can learn these skills that I did. As my grandparents said, they didn't believe in the gifted few. You get good at what you like to do, so find what you like to do. The way I interpreted that was whatever you're doing in your free time, make your full-time job. That is a way to stoke your passion, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, there are a lot of people who grew up on a kind of diatribe of work hard. They worked hard, yeah. but they also played hard. So, <laughs> Yeah, but there was a disconnect between like working hard and what your passion was, almost as if your passion couldn't possibly be work. You know what I mean? Right. So that, therefore, it was discounted in such a way. And that's so unfortunate. I agree. I, um, <laughs> and I think it's a loss for all of us. Because I learn from other people. I, I watch to see how people engage with the material. I, it reminds me of other stories or other lessons. It's informative. Like that Borscht story. Mm -hmm. It was great. I shared this with a docent at one of the museums when there was an Eames exhibit traveling. And I later saw her at the exhibit. And she came over to me. And she said, your Borscht story worked. I said, really? <laughs> great. What, what happened? She said, my grandchildren always complained about my salads. So the next time they complained about the salads, I said, how, what should we do differently? 
And it turns out like they didn't like the mushrooms, both salad leaves were a little too big. So I had them help me make the salad. And now we all love our salads. And I said, that's perfect. That's totally perfect. Okay, we need to capture all of these stories. That's going to be my mission to help you archive all of these stories. If I have to have a million phone calls with you to capture that. (laughs) I would love that. But see, this is, but this is what's so funny is it's talking to you is reminding me of things and that's leading to other things. It's, it's these other pathways of learning that I had and I love sharing them with you. It's been so much fun with, with being able to talk to you about these things. I mean, I, I have to ask, if there are no failures, there are only misconceptions. And if you should not be afraid to encounter some of those failures, I got to hear a story about a failure. How do you work with yourself through the extreme disappointment of something not turning out the way you thought it would? Oh, you're talking to a perfectionist. So <laughs> there's always failure. I always remember what's more important is doing the work. I always think of Ray and Charles's work as participatory. You sit in a chair, you go walk through and learn in an exhibit, you watch a film. And so what I am realizing is with the Institute is that the best thing that will happen with the lessons is when people apply them. I apply them in my daily life and anyone who comes to the website applies them because that's the work that needs to happen. And, and yes, there's going to be lots of failures. There's failures all the time, but I don't look at them as failures. I'm just, I'm just, I feel like I'm going to move the needle a little bit closer to success the next time I try. That is the absolute best way to look at it. It's not a setback. You move the needle closer. Yeah. And I don't even know if I'm ever going to get there, but I'm doing my best and I'm enjoying every moment of it. I just can't even tell you, Amy, this is such an extraordinary moment to be launching this website and to be sharing this legacy with the world in a whole new way. It's just amazing. And I can't wait for you to visit the website and and to enjoy it and let me know what you think. I will be there. I mean, I wouldn't be a creative if I didn't ask you how you're taking the participatory nature of people visiting the website and and engaging in these lessons. How are you going to capture that experience? What's the mechanism for capturing people's responses? I think people are going to be writing us or email us. I'm, I'm trying to make myself available. So, you know, all of us want to learn what people are, are experiencing on the website. And, you know, it's going to be an iterative process. We're always going to be learning from this. And it's going to be an exciting process of taking in the feedback. I mean, I think in today, there's so many channels to have feedback. But I think what's exciting, though, is that the the learning never stops. And so we'll always be improving upon it, but taking in what people are saying, what what they like or don't like, what they want more of, what they might want less of, I have no idea. I do feel, though, what we are launching is something that has been distilled of 20 years of my mother and I doing this more in person. And now we are translating this into something that's digital. And I feel like there's a lot of good grounding and a lot of many years of experience of watching this resonate with people. So I think there's some good material in there, no matter what. Well, clearly, I mean, the Borscht story works. You know, I'm a big fan of storytelling, as you might have guessed. I am also deeply interested and invested in how you're able to bring these stories to life through uh, digital interaction and participatory nature. And I think that I'll be very much tuned into that and, and paying attention to how that gets distributed out through your, your various channels. I think it can't be understated. I'm also really picking up on your genuine joy in this endeavor. And... I'm really heartened by that because I firmly believe that um, creative education is something that we need to adapt. It's how humans are going to adapt in in an increasingly uncertain and wild changing world. I agree completely. (laughs) Yes. And yet it's not exactly championed in general pop culture because there's still so many people who believe that it's not really a secure or lucrative path to go down. 
Sadly, you know, it's, I, I have two children and a lot of this, I think of their future and the world that they will be in. And that's another reason why I love doing this is for the next generations. And the way I look at this is when someone comes away from the website, maybe learning one or two different ways that Ray and Charles solved a problem is Charles would often talk about the toolkit. And if all you have is a hammer in the toolkit, you will solve every problem with the hammer. <laughs> So I'm yes. trying. So what I'm trying to do is add more tools to the toolkit, and you can use them or not. I think that that's one of the things that we're trying to do. It and also I believe in design with a lowercase d, not capital D. Design is available to everyone. You're designing your life every day and making choices. This is just for people to become more conscious of the choices that they're making, thinking of the larger context. Are there other ways to solve problems? How do you communicate that idea? How are you seeing this? And then how are you doing it? That's perfectly put. That's exactly what design is. It's not even the outcome. It's the framework for, for making those decisions. And the toolkit. The toolkit is so important, and I love that story. My sister asked me, her, her daughter's considering studying industrial design, and she's like, well, what's the difference between that and a business major? Like, how will she be set up? And I was like, well, as an industrial designer, you will always be able to generate your own seeds to plant. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think it's also helpful that she has a sidecar education in business because that will help her fertilize those seeds. But if you're just have an education in business, you're always going to be fertilizing somebody else's seeds. If you're not passionate about those seeds, it's not a very meaningful existence. Yes. And I think that's the sort of self-examination that happens and will be fruitful for that individual. Charles had a great quote about just because you understand how a rainbow works doesn't take away from its magic. And <laughs> so the more we can make it transparent, how you work and how you make choices, you'll end up making better choices. And I want us to be good stewards moving forward. And so that that's part of why I do what I do. Well, I love that you're doing what you're doing. And I can't wait to come visit. You're welcome anytime. I want to hear all those stories. And I want to I want to capture them. <laughs> well, I, I love sharing the stories with you. And I just really thank you for this opportunity to share this exciting moment of the legacy as we're launching the website. That is so exciting. Okay, what is the URL so everyone can go visit? It's eamesinstitute.org. Go and visit and you can see the online exhibits that I was just sharing about and you can read some of the wonderful stories in Kazam and also just get a little grounding in who Ray and Charles were and my mother and how we are taking this legacy um, in the years to come. So for me, what we're doing is we're not looking at the past. We're looking forward to how we can solve the problems in the future with this legacy. Very, very powerful. And I also just want to encourage our listeners to engage in that process, give the feedback that they're seeking in order to make this a successful and really meaningful endeavor uh, for as many people as possible. Yes. Ray and Charles were never interested in how a chair looked. They just want to know if it was doing its job in 5, 10, 15, 25 years. I want to set us up so the website is doing its job, which is to help share these lessons to help people understand how to solve problems um, in the future in 25 years, 50 years, 100 years. I want to leave this with a question for you. You personally, Lisa Dimitrios. You have an extraordinary job in front of you, one that you seem to be engaging with with a tremendous amount of joy. You're still an active bronze sculptor, correct? I have to say, I have shifted more to the archival material and taking care of the collection. I still work in wood and other materials than just bronze. I've branched out. You know, after about 15 years in bronze, you know, I did decide I would try some other materials. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I think you can pick another material and get to know that very exactly. well. As a full spectrum human who's deeply engaged in this work, can you just leave me with something that fortifies you, that helps you maintain your optimism and that keeps you motivated every day, even if it's not related to this legacy, but is just a, a practice? For me, one of my greatest joys 
is watching somebody have an aha moment when they engage with the material or just understanding the idea. So for me, it's having the aha, watching the aha moments for people is the greatest pleasure. But even better, they share them back with me and hearing that, why that's something meant to them. And it can be about Ray and Charles' work, but it's also whether it's my sculpture or whatever it is. It's, it's that connection that you have with another person that means that you're understanding each other. You're, you're sharing this amazing, incredible nugget of something. That's the, those are the special moments in life. And I treasure all of them. That's beautiful. I treasure those too. Those, those are my favorite. So isn't it fun to watch somebody when they're like, Oh, when the light bulb goes off, it (laughs) is just amazing. You must see it with your students and your colleagues too. I mean, it's just like, there's just something like, okay, wow, that was awesome. I feel like when that happens, we've both sort of for a second traveled to another dimension together and then come back to this to this real moment in time with a new understanding. And it feels like a deep moment of connection. And I love it. (laughs) It's a very special shift. It's like something shifts and changes and you're witness to it and you never forget it. No. And in fact, you feel changed. You feel evolved or in some way have grown from it. So that's what keeps me going happily is because it happens a lot. I mean, with the, with the work of my grandparents, it's pr- pretty easy to, <laughs> I, I gotta say, it's pretty special material to work with every day. And I don't take it for granted. And I just want to share with it, share it as much as possible. Well, thank you for sharing it with us. You're amazing, Lisa. Good luck to you on this mission. I'm very excited about it. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. I look forward to your visiting sometime soon. Thanks for listening. To see images of Lisa and her work, read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're resonating with what we do here, we would really appreciate your ratings and reviews. They help us share these stories with others who might also enjoy them. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. You can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.